welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm one of many lay leaders at First Congregational Church of Oakland in California. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. It's good to be with you again. I'm just back from a short trip to northeastern Ohio, where I grew up and where my parents still live. It was an eye-opening trip for me. Something happened that is a little bit hard for me to talk about, and yet it feels important to examine it. Before we go there, though, I want to invite you and myself into a practice that helps me to ground myself and to be capable of being present to suffering without getting swept away by it. I invite you to get comfortable wherever you are right now, feeling the earth supporting you. If you're sitting, Feel the chair underneath you. Feel your feet on the ground. Now, imagine that there is a string attached to the crown of your head and that it is very, very gently pulling upward, just enough to bring your head into alignment with your spinal column, that remarkable, sturdy column of vertebrae that hold you upright all day long without you having to think about it. Imagine that that string is connected to God, however you imagine God to be, and that the love and support of God is running through it and into you like light. Now, imagine that there are roots growing down from your feet and into the ground, and through those roots is also running the love and support of God so that you are held above and below. Finally, imagine that you can also send out through those same lines of connection, your love and support and desire for all beings to be well. Sometimes I also imagine that the love and support coming into me from God and the earth is also pouring out into the world from the area around my heart. Let's just linger there for a moment, soaking in the love and support and then funneling it out into the world. So now, this experience I had in Ohio, while I was there, while I was visiting with an old friend in a coffee house, I found someone overdosing in the coffee house restroom. I opened the door and found him convulsing on the floor, a needle in his hand. He had gouged his face and arms bloody with the needle in the course of the seizures, and his head was slamming against the floor and the wall. 
never seen anything like that before. Times like this, you have to decide in a split second what you are going to do. I have to be honest that I think most days I would have backed away, called in others who, I might tell myself, were better equipped to deal with the situation. Now, I'm not interested in judging that decision to back away. Often, it may be the right one. But I am interested in whatever it was that not just enabled me, but compelled me, this time, to move in. Calling out for someone to call an ambulance, no police, please, no need to criminalize this. I shoved myself into the bathroom, helped the barista who had rushed over to remove the needle from the man's hand, and then wedged my lap and torso under his head where it was banging. And I stayed there until the paramedics arrived, stroking his hair and telling him it was going to be all right. I have not been able to stop thinking about that man ever since. We have all been hearing about the so-called opioid epidemic. More than 4,000 people died of overdose last year in Ohio alone. But this was not an epidemic. This was a human being right in front of me. His clothes were ragged. His skin was pasty and mottled. He was in a bad way. I suppose one might have dismissed him as a junkie. I might have been afraid to get involved with him under ordinary circumstances. But through no particular moral righteousness of my own, for reasons I can't explain, and certainly do not want to claim credit for, in that moment I had to get in there. And I can't stop thinking about him. I can't stop wondering about the conditions of his life. You see, I grew up there. I know about the homophobia that soaked me in shame. I know about the segregation of communities and the deeply entrenched white supremacy that distorted my relationships even as I benefited from it. I know about the lack of opportunity and the economic depression of that Rust Belt region now that the steel mills have shut down. A depression that has recently been tempered or maybe just shape-shifted by the advent of fracking which has created overnight millionaires, but which will likely leave the community even more devastated when the oil dries up, as it has in other places. I know about the fierce pride and the hidden shame of my own white working-class family. And by the way, if you've not listened to Blythe Barno's amazing episode of this podcast on the ways that white supremacy harms white working-class people, I urge you to pause this episode and do that now. It's from July 2nd, and it's called A Weight We Don't Understand. Look for it on SoundCloud, and I'll link to it in the transcript of this episode. It is helping me immensely to understand my experience this weekend. Anyway, I don't know the particular circumstances that brought that man to that dirty bathroom floor, but I do know that there were circumstances. Addiction is often addressed as a personal failing, a moral lapse, a sin in the way we commonly misuse that word. But I believe, based on my own experience, the research, the experiences of people I love, that it is instead a social failing, a communal disease that enables us to survive the agony of living in a world that is so far out of alignment with God's intention, that deep interconnectedness, abundance, and joy that God intends. Addiction destroys individual lives. It is almost always fatal if left untreated. 
and it further decimates families and communities that are already hurting from social conditions largely outside our control. Addiction is as much communal as it is personal. And maybe that is true of all health issues. So all of this has put me in an interesting frame of mind to contemplate our lectionary passages for this week. Let's turn there now. I'll be focusing on Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. read this passage or really any part of the Gospels without getting a sense of the incredible suffering of ordinary people in Jesus' time. People all around him in every town he visits are sick, hurting, bent over, paralyzed, afflicted with socially isolating leprosy and possessed by what are called demons. People are in a bad way. And then, as now, these afflictions were sometimes viewed as personal failings. You might remember the healing of blind Bartimaeus in the Gospel of John, where people are so caught up in speculating about who sinned, Bartimaeus or his parents, to make him blind, that at first they can't even take in the miracle that he has been restored to sight. And even when the accusation of sin isn't voiced, illness and disability, whether physical or mental, are grounds for social exclusion. There are these laws about cleanliness and purity that discourage people from coming into contact with those who are sick, people with leprosy, even menstruating women, all of whom are considered unclean. To touch someone who is unclean is to become unclean oneself. The status of unclean is contagious. And in a way, that makes sense, right, in a culture with very little health care. In fact, most of the Jewish law can be understood as guidelines for keeping an endangered community alive amidst serious danger of infection that was, at the time, untreatable. After all, there were no antibiotics, right? So the cleanliness codes made sense as a communal survival mechanism. And yet the effects were devastating. The severing of individuals from their community at the time they most needed it. What Jesus does in almost every healing he performs, and certainly in the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law in this passage, is to violate the cleanliness codes, to forsake his own ritual cleanliness in the service of breaking the isolation of suffering people. In some ways, that is the whole point of the incarnation, right? God gives up the privilege of cleanliness, of transcendence, God's ability to be up out of the messiness and suffering of creation in order to enter into the mess and the suffering and to bring love into the midst of it. That is what Jesus does over and over again. He reaches out when it breaks the law and the custom, when it costs him his respectability, when it damages his appearance of being holy and righteous, and even when it puts him in danger with the state. I don't think he did this in order to achieve yet a higher level of purity or righteousness. I think he did it because he saw people. 
perceived their suffering and could not not reach out to alleviate it. One way of approaching this text then is to consider what it means for us to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Who are the people who are ritually unclean today? What are the modern day cleanliness codes that keep us separate from one another? Codes that might be so embedded in our culture that we aren't even fully aware of them until we come up against them. Certainly white supremacy works that way. Deeply tied to respectability, white supremacy and other forms of oppression divide the world arbitrarily into those who are worthy, acceptable, clean, and those who are not. And it prohibits contact across that divide. For example, through laws prohibiting intermarriage, or laws prohibiting feeding people who are hungry on the street, or cultural pressures not to associate with people who are gay or lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or queer. This latter pressure works through a logic very similar to the cleanliness codes. If you associate with LGBTQ people, you are at risk of being considered queer yourself. In other words, of losing your heterosexual privilege. The logic is one of contagion. In that sense, HIV AIDS just provided pseudoscientific justification for a fear and loathing and avoidance that was already prevalent. Illness and disability likewise carry with them stigma and shame. We might think people foolish for believing that Bartimaeus was born blind as punishment for sin, but don't we often reinscribe that same notion? All too often we find ourselves blaming people for getting sick. He shouldn't have eaten so poorly, or she should have exercised more, ignoring how these lifestyle decisions are shaped by, for example, the fact that he lived in a food desert, or that he was suffering from social trauma as a result of oppression and was self-medicating for that, or that she was too busy working three minimum wage jobs to exercise. Not to mention the fact that no amount of dietary vigilance or physical activity is a guarantee against getting sick. Although we might want to deny it, we continue to associate illness and disability with sin and personal failing. Maybe we do this because we want to believe that if we do everything right, illness or disability can't happen to us. We try to distance ourselves from suffering by blaming the sufferer and distancing ourselves from them. This blame game is a key piece of the logic of white supremacy. The systems of white supremacy are maintained by our willingness to believe that people of color somehow deserve what they get. If a black child is beaten or killed by the police or the school security guard, well, they must have done something to deserve it. If black or brown people are disproportionately incarcerated, it's because they are morally deficient. If people of color are underrepresented in both public and private leadership positions, it's because they are not as talented. We blame the victim rather than examine the social conditions and the systems that are generating disparities in health and other outcomes, conditions and systems in which we ourselves are implicated. We try to remain separate, uncontaminated. If our lives are hard, bitter, and painful, at least we are not that. It's really uncomfortable to be around suffering. It's uncomfortable to be around sick people, old people. As much as we fear physical contagion, I think we fear that we might have to feel the pain that we are stuffing down. 
both the pain from what we are allowing to happen to others and the pain that we feel from our own oppression. Coming into contact with others' suffering may stir up our own. We fear having to confront our own fragility, our own mortality, so we protect ourselves by distancing ourselves. Laws and cultural norms around respectability only serve to reinforce this distancing. Deep down, I think we fear losing the ability to play by the rules that we believe are saving our lives. And that is what Jesus would not do. He would not play by the rules that harmed other human beings, even if doing so would have saved himself. Nearly every healing he performs was an act of civil disobedience. He healed on the Sabbath. He touched corpses, something Jewish law forbids. He healed through physical contact with sick people, and he faced the consequences on the cross. And he asked us to follow. Down south, near the border of this country, people are dying in the Arizona desert as they cross into this country. An organization called No More Deaths has sprung up and is organizing volunteers to provide water, food, first aid, and other forms of humanitarian assistance to immigrants crossing the desert. In the past few months, nine of those volunteers have been brought up on criminal charges for providing assistance. In the current political climate, immigrants are considered unclean. It is difficult for them to access health care for fear of detection and deportation. This one form of many kinds of racial health disparities hides from us the social implications of our policies. Studies have found that black women are three times as likely to die in childbirth. Asthma affects communities of color in vastly disproportionate ways as a result of neighborhoods exposed to diesel exhaust and other air pollutants. Black children have a 260% higher emergency department visit rate, a 250% higher hospitalization rate, and a 500% higher death rate from asthma compared to white children. I could go on and on citing statistics but these health impacts are not individual. Addiction is not individual. Social isolation as a result of illness and disability is not an individual problem. None of this is the result of individual decisions, mistakes, or sin. All of it is the result of our collective sin, our willingness to secure our own safety, purity, and well-being at the expense of other human beings. So I ask you, and I ask myself, what does it mean to be a part of the healing? What cleanliness codes stand in our way? What risks are we willing to take to do that? Jesus beckons us not just to admire his healings, but to follow in his footsteps. Amen.
Finally, I encourage you to learn about disability justice, a movement that shifts our thinking from single-issue disability rights struggles to a worldview shift that views everybody as whole and perfect, just as it is. As Nomi Lamb puts it, disability justice challenges the idea that our worth as individuals has to do with our ability to perform as productive members of society. It insists that our worth is inherent and tied to the liberation of all beings. I'll include a bunch of links in the transcript so that you can learn more about disability justice. Then, please begin to think about how you can begin breaking down assumptions about whose bodies and minds matter. Assumptions that Christianity all too often has reinforced by the way we talk about Jesus' healings. How can we shift the conversation so that we are no longer pathologizing certain bodies, but instead critiquing the systems and structures that exclude them? What are the practical things you can do at your church or in your community to begin this process? Some communities I know have begun asking people to avoid wearing scented products to church so that people with scent sensitivities can more easily participate. At the very least, we can rethink when it is necessary to stand or kneel to avoid putting those who can't in an awkward position. Please share what you are learning and doing by commenting on this podcast or on our Facebook page. We want to learn along with you. Thank you for joining me this week. As always, the transcript of this episode is available on the Surge website at www.showingupforracialjustice.org. And it will include references, credits, and copyright information, as well as a bunch of resources to support your action. Next week, Alan will unpack the scriptures for February 11th. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. Oh,